Mike Collin was a linebacker for the Miami Dolphins and graduate of Auburn University. He, his former coach, Shug Jordan, uh, asked him if he would help him do some recruiting. And so Mike said, sure, coach, what kind of player are you looking for? The coach said, well, Mike, you know where there's this fellow who keeps knocking people down and they just stay down? Mike said, yes. Is that the guy you want, coach? He said, no, that's not the right guy and that's not the guy I want. Then there's that guy and that fellow, you know, that knocks him down and he gets up. And when he's knocked down, he gets up. Mike says, we don't want him either, do we, coach? No, that's right. Then there's that fellow you knock down, he gets up, you knock him down, he gets up, you knock him down, he gets up, you knock him down, he gets up. No matter how many times you knock him down, he gets up. Mike asks, is that the guy you want? Right, coach? The coach says, no, we don't want him either. Then who do you want, coach? Mike asks. I want you to find the guy who's knocking everybody down. You know, one of the main reasons why we find ourselves sometimes on the ground being knocked down is because the enemy is doing everything that he possibly can to keep us down. And isn't it true that no matter how many times you get up, it seems as if the enemy is quick to knock you down again. And as soon as you get up, he's knocking you down again. We're under constant attack by the enemy who wants to knock us down and keep us down. But the reality is that he seeks to bring us down more often through our thoughts than any other place in our lives. We often fail to realize that he attacks us most often where we think. In that unhidden part of our, of our fabric, of our makeup, there's what we call the mind. There's a thing called the thought life. And in our thinking is often the primary place where the enemy is attacking us the most because he knows that if he can get us to do what I want to call stinking thinking, he can defeat us, knock us down, and keep us down. Because more people, I'm convinced, are knocked down and stay down because they are not thinking properly. They are not cultivating the right kind of thought life. They are not helping then through the helmet of salvation to counteract that which God intends for us to do through what he has provided for us in this beautiful aspect of the armor entitled the helmet of salvation. The apostle Paul, we know when he is being chained while writing this book to the letter to the church of Ephesians, is, is chained to a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion. And I can imagine being chained to a Roman centurion 24-7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He is very much aware of what a Roman soldier is wearing. He sees it every morning. He sees it every evening. And somehow, through divine inspiration, the Holy Spirit gives him some insight in regard to the armor that God has given us as believers. When we were saved, upon salvation, we have been entrusted, we have been given at our salvation this beautiful equipment called the armor that God has provided for us. And so and it, as we sort of have been looking at that for the last several weeks, we have identified multiple pieces of armor that are extremely important. But there is none more important, or may I say there is equally important, as we take a look at the helmet of salvation. Because if the enemy, let me repeat this, if the enemy can get you to think wrongly, to have thoughts that are displeasing to God, to cultivate sinful thoughts, they will lead 
to sinful passions and drive us to sinful activities and cause us to trip up, fall down, and stay down until we change the aspect of how we are thinking or what we are thinking or concentrating on. Any athlete will tell you that concentration is the key right before a match or a game in order to defeat or overcome the enemy and accomplish the ultimate goal, and that is victory or a win. Without concentration, you cannot accomplish what you set out to do. I can remember when I was in high school and college and I played some high school ball and college ball that we shot 500 to 800 times that basketball in that little hoop every day. It's several strategic places on the basketball court every day. And as you would sit there and you would sort of, you know, shoot the hoop, you would imagine, you would concentrate on the ball before you would shoot it, going into the hoop and scoring the point. And by doing it enough, it became almost automatic to concentrate, to focus your attention while you're playing and while you're shooting, and you would visualize, you would concentrate, you would focus on the ball going through the hoop. And at any time, if the opponent got you to somehow lose concentration, the end result was no basket. The enemy is doing exactly the same thing for us. He is trying to get us to sort of off kilter, to sort of divert our attention, to, to, to become distracted, so to speak, to lose our focus, our concentration in our thought life on God and the things of God. And so I want to take a look at this little thing that uh, is on the screen here that sort of helps sort of analyze or evaluate exactly what we're talking about. In other words, we need to... In- indefinitely launch an offensive in spiritual warfare that directs our attention to a single object. Who is that object? The object is Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Sovereign, our Lord. We must take the helmet of salvation, Ephesians 6, 17, that enables, equips, and empowers us to take every thought captive to obey Christ. To take every thought captive to obey Christ. If we are to maintain concentration, every thought that we have should be taken captive by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if we could somehow accomplish that more often than not, we would find ourselves ready to stand against what the enemy throws at us. And once we take every thought captive to obey Christ... 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6, so that we might be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Romans 12, 2. To be transformed, to take every thought captive in order to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we came to faith in Christ, our minds were transformed. Our thought life changed. Now we are thinking differently than we did before. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks a lot about that in his writing to the church in Ephesus, that the old life is no longer our life. We are living a new life. That old life, we had a certain way of thinking. But now through the, through the renewing of our mind, that is an activity of the Spirit of God, that once he indwells in us as believers in Christ, we are equipped now with a new way of thinking, the mind of Christ that thinks differently than we did before. Before we came to faith in Christ, we didn't dwell upon, think about, or meditate or even concentrate on Christ or the things of Christ or the Word of God. We just did not. We thought, 
primarily about carnal things, self-centered things, self-indulging things, our way things. And now, through the new life, we have turned from that and we are now focused in our concentration on the things of Christ. And the enemy is bombarding us daily to get us off kilter and to stop that concentration factor and the focus that we need in Christ. For it says that it will require focus. Notice what it says. To think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now let me ask you, if that was the focus of your thinking 24-7, Wouldn't it be great? Do you do that? I know I don't. And I get paid to do that. (laughs) That's my calling. I just feel like I don't get paid to do that, but I do it because it's my calling. I just happen to have the benefit of getting compensation because of that call. But, but, uh, you know, you would think, well, the pastor of all people, maybe he could do that, to think all the time on whatever's pure, whatever's loved, whatever's commendable, whatever is excellent. If there's anything worthy of praise, he's thinking on these things. No, I'm not. Just drive with me for about 35 minutes, and you'll know in Wichita, uh, there are some people from a certain part of town in the south of Wichita that somehow don't know how to drive very well. Okay, they live on the southeast part of Wichita. Okay, it's Derby. Just <laughs> <clears throat> I'm just, just glad you're with me. Um, you know, it's hard, isn't it, to always think about and always concentrate on the things that are honorable, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things that are commendable, things that are excellent, things that are worthy of praise. And the next time you're tempted to click that little thing called a mouse and watch pornography, Think about this scripture. The next time you're watching your favorite TV show and you see something that you know you should not watch, maybe you need to click it on another channel. Next time somebody drives you to think thoughts of anger and retaliation and vengeance, maybe you need to dwell upon these scriptures. The next time your spouse doesn't quite react or respond the way that you hoped they would, maybe you need to think a little bit differently. Parents, maybe the next time your children don't jump as soon as you talk, you might want to think a little bit differently. And children, next time your parents act very human, maybe you need to think a little bit differently. You see, it impacts and affects the family how we think. No family falls apart until it first falls apart in the mind. Marriages first begin to deteriorate in the thinking, not just in the heart, because the mind directs the heart, and the heart then fulfills those passions and drives and desires into action and activity that results in the defeat of not only the believer, but the defeat of the marriage and the destruction of the family. It's important to guard how and what we dwell upon. Concentration is the key. Let's look at three aspects about that concentration this morning as we think about how do I keep my concentration. To keep my concentration, I first need to be prepared. 
I need to be prepared. It's a small verse this morning in verse 17, and that verse begins with the word and. That's a conjunction leaking what he has just said to what he's about to say. What has he said so far? We have what pieces of the armor so far? We have number one is the belt of truth. What's number two? Come on. I'm going to wait till I get an answer. The breastplate of righteousness. What's number three? Huh? Gospel shoes. Have you guys been awake during this study? What's number four? The shield of faith. Now we're on number five. So, so far he has mentioned four aspects of the armor. Bob, you're sitting in the wrong place. Brother, you're making me off kilter, dude. You're in the far back, man. You need to come up here right now. You misbehaved back there. Anyway, so there are four pieces of the armor that he has described. And now in verse 17, he uses the conjunction and, and there's a reason for that. He's saying these four elements of the armor are critically, strategically important. And what I'm about to tell you is equally important. You can't sit there and decide, well, these three are and these aren't, and this one is and this one, and this is more important, this is less important. They are all equally important for the soldier. And the helmet of salvation, he says, and take up in all circumstances, take it up. You need all of the equipment, all of the armor. You not only need the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the, shoe, the gospel shoes, and the, the shield of faith. You need the helmet of salvation to guard your thoughts. Why? Because Ephesians 6.10 reminds us, Find and be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil has schemes right now that he's trying to play against your mind to get you to think thoughts that you shouldn't think, to direct you into places that you shouldn't go. He has a strategy. He is very strategic. He is very intentional. And he will create activities and atmosphere and relationships and all kinds of things to get you and to divert you away from concentrating on Christ and the things that we have described that are lovely and pure and all of those wonderful things that edify us and help us in our battle against the enemy. We are fighting a spiritual battle, and that spiritual battle is partially in the mind with what we think, and our thought life is strategic in that battle. And I want you to understand how strategically important it is for you to be prepared when the enemy attacks to recognize him and then to put on the helmet. You need to understand that he's going to attack you in the way that you're thinking about your spouse or your marriage or your, your, your children or your family or your church or your Jesus or your witness. He is going to come and bombard your thoughts to, to pull you away from your commitment to Christ and to concentrate on things that are less noble, things that are tangible, things that are, are inconsistent with your walk and things that, that, are, that are unlovely and even things that are sinful. To move you away from who you are in Christ, to defeat you and to keep you down so that you're not enjoying the victory that Christ intended for you to have. There's a beautiful example in Genesis chapter 3, which all of us are familiar with. It's the fall of man with Adam and Eve. And I want to read it real quickly. In Genesis 3 verse 7 as our illustration, it simply begins with verse 1. Now the servant was more crafted than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. What's he doing? He's trying to get her to think, hey, let me divert your attention. Let me distract you a little bit. Let me challenge what you are thinking. 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She's thinking right, right? Her reasoning is sound. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What's he doing? Twisting, distracting, distorting, disguising. He's very devious. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. That's understanding. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is he attacking? He is attacking the very thing that she is thinking at the moment about what God said she should not do. Whenever the enemy attacks you mentally, try to get you to divert your attention, your concentration away from Christ, the best defense is the sword of the Spirit, which we'll talk about next week. But it's not just the sword itself. It's what I believe about that sword. It's what I believe about that truth. It's about what I think about that truth. It's about how to meditate on it. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, notice, and that it delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one what? Wise. Is that not mental? Is that not of the mind? Is she not losing her mind here? And she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was standing by her side. Gentlemen, it wasn't her fault. The man should have spoke up. He should have said, no, honey, that's not what we need to eat. But he didn't. He was silent. And he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were what? Without clothes. That's, that's not just visual, that's mental. They knew something was different. They began to think differently, and the enemy had entrapped them, and he had diverted their attention. Through doubt, he brought deception. Through deception, brought desire. Desire caused disobedience. Disobedience brought about defeat. All because they began to lose their focus and their concentration on the very things that God had said and on God himself, and as a result, they stumbled and they fell. Do you think for one minute Eve thought, I'm in the garden, this beautiful thing that God has given me to enjoy, and I'm going to be attacked by the enemy? Do you ever, ever think maybe she kind of had her guard down? Maybe she was looking at all the beauty of creation and then all of a sudden in looking at that saw this tree and then noticed the serpent which was more crafty than, and cunning than any she had ever seen before deceived her. Why? Because she was not guarded and ready and recognized the enemy when he came. And therefore she was not able to stand her ground. I think you and I, if we are not careful... We too can be easily deceived. We can doubt what the word of God says. We can desire the wrong things because we're thinking the wrong things. And as a result of that, we will disobey. And the end of that disobedience is defeat. Be prepared. Satan is more than likely tempting you as you're sitting in your chair right now trying to get you to think about something else other than what God would have you think about. I know I'm, I'm a little boring, but you need to concentrate on him. We need, to, we need to focus, people. We need to concentrate. We need to hone in on with our minds and our thoughts 
and our beliefs, those things that God has given us in the way that we think, or we too will become victims. And I'm convinced there are more Christians who have become defeated in their faith because of the wrong thinking than anything else because that's where it begins. And so we must put on the helmet of salvation, which brings us to the second point. We not only need to be prepared, we need to be proactive. In other words, we need to act, not react. I think we need to, we need to prepare. We need to act, not react. When a, when a soldier, if you notice, takes the helmet of salvation when he goes into the battle, that is the next to the last thing that he grabs as he goes and engages the enemy. It's the helmet. And the helmet was something like a, maybe not like a football helmet, but it was something similar in order to protect the, the soldier from the arrows and from the blows of the swords and while he was in close combat. And, and this helmet fit tightly around his head and there were some straps that came down his cheeks and he tied it around. And so there was not much exposed. There was not much that was vulnerable to the enemy's attacks. And so he was pretty much covered from, from shoulder to head and all the way around just enough here so he could see. And so we need to understand that there's, there's, there's an aspect about this helmet that as we put it on, as we put on the helmet of salvation, that it is tightly fitted around our head, that it is, that it is there to protect, to guard, and to shield so that there, there's no vulnerability, there's no opportunity, there's nothing that, that, is, hit, that, is, that is not covered that, that needs to be covered so that we can find the protection that we're supposed to have. And so the helmet was something that covered the head and covered the cheek no vulnerabilities, and no opportunity to the enemy. So in our thought life, we should wear the helmet of salvation so that there are no vulnerabilities whatsoever. No opportunity for the devil whatsoever. And I think sometimes we place ourselves in places and in positions where we are vulnerable, where there's not much protection we, 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 we may be by ignorance or maybe by intention of our own place ourselves in situations, in places, or in relationships, or whatever that make us vulnerable to wrong thoughts, to wrong ideas, to wrong beliefs. And we must be very careful to be proactive in our, in our battle and our stance against the enemy and not put ourselves in situations and in places where we'll be vulnerable. I, I don't have a problem with internet. I don't. But if you search the web lately, I don't care what you search on the web. There's opportunities on the side to watch all kinds of filth. Type in the, right? Am I, uh, come on. You know what I'm talking about? Come on. Let me have a hand. Am I the only one? It doesn't matter. Type up peace. And there'll be an opportunity for Russian girls. I don't know how that happens. Stuff like that. And, and so, you know, my computer in my office is faced so that anybody, the door's always open, can see what I'm looking at. The one in my house in my basement is also facing, it's not that I'm tempted, but I'm not going to give any opportunity for the devil. I mean, just last night I was sitting there getting ready for this morning and, and all of a sudden I felt this thing right here and I looked and it was my wife. She kind of sneaks around. I, she's so light-footed, I didn't hear her. And she was standing there saying, it's time to go to bed now because, you know, I, I, I get lost downstairs preparing for messages and I start chasing rap. Anyway, and, and it kind of startled me. And so, you know, 
My back is to the door. You know, I don't want to leave any opportunity for the devil. You got to be careful where you find yourself and where you place yourself and the vulnerabilities and opportunities that you give so that you might be tempted to think the wrong things and to dwell upon the wrong thoughts and to lose your concentration. 1 Samuel 17 is a beautiful passage where we know where King David, and we've studied it not long ago, where he, he is selected to go and take some food to his brothers, and he does. And when he does, he hears this giant named Goliath who's standing in between the two hills down in the valley challenging the men of God to come to a battle, and no one comes. And he says, what's the matter? You guys are wimpy. Why don't you trust the Lord? Eventually, word gets back to Saul, and they, he is summoned by Saul, and he and Saul have a conversation. And Saul tries to do what? He says, okay, if you're going to go into battle, then wear my armor. Was that God's armor or man's armor? It was man's armor. And he was smart enough to say, no, 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 I can't go into battle with this. I've not tried out this armor. This is not mine. And he takes only what God has provided. And you know the story when he goes down and he confronts Goliath finally? What does Goliath do? He taunts him. He ridicules him. He, he says, you wimp, you little wuss, you can't defeat me. Look at me. I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. I have equipment that's greater than yours. What's Goliath doing? Before the battle even starts, trying to get him to focus off of his God and focus on the enemy, lose his concentration, to analyze the enemy, and somehow, by doubt and despair, to become defeated even before the battle begins. Satan is a master at that. Too often and too many times, even before we engage the enemy, he's whispering, you can't do it. I'm bigger than you. You can't overcome me. You've fallen to me time and time again, and you're not going to win this time. But notice what David said in 1 Samuel 17. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Notice the helmet of salvation. Let me have the next slide, would you? Thank you. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will smite you down and cut, you, cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that will... That, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Notice his response. Did he ever lose his focus? Not. Why? He knew what the enemy was doing, and he put, his, put this helmet of salvation on, and he believed that God would save him even before the battle began. He believed God would save him as he was talking to Saul as he went down to face the enemy, and now the enemy is challenging him. He said, hey, dude, I'm going to put my trust in God, and I know who my God is, and I know that I'm going to come out victorious. The helmet of salvation doesn't listen to the whispers and to the lies of the enemy. 
to distract and to deceive and to distort our faith and to cripple us in our understanding of who God is and what he wants to do. And we must act proactive in order to see the reality of our faith by putting on the helmet of salvation that enables us to to even though while we may hear what the enemy wants to whisper into our ears and to manipulate our thoughts, we do not yield to the temptation of doubt, despair, discouragement that ultimately ends in defeat. Number three, so here we've learned that uh, to keep concentration, I need to be prepared, I need to be proactive, and third, I need to be preemptive. That means I need to act quickly, I need to act decisively, I need to act even before the battle begins, and it says the helmet of salvation. That word salvation means deliverance. It means simply deliverance. It is a state of being pers- <laughs> preserved from danger. To be preserved from danger. In other words, there's an assurance that we have when we put on the helmet of salvation that I cannot and will not be defeated. So when you take a look at the word salvation in the Bible, there are three aspects or three elements of what I'm going to call the, the, um, this, this word called salvation. There are three aspects about it. There's the past, the present, and the future. And I want, to, I want us to quickly look at these three Quickly look at them to help us understand how we put on the helmet of salvation, how the enemy often tries to bombard us with a lack of assurance in defeating him when, when he knows he's already been defeated. I don't believe that I read the last chapter of the book of Revelation, and I know who wins in the end. And, and I know that uh, he's already a defeated foe, but sometimes in our struggle to... Uh, to guard our thoughts and the struggle to overcome the thoughts that we should not think and to maintain our concentration, our focus, there's often a distraction there. So let's look at the assurance of, of, of deliverance. Number one, it recalls past, it recalls a past event. Assurance will recall a past event. In other words, that's what we call justification. This is the time and the moment where you and I placed our faith and trust in Christ And our debt was paid in full by Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And now we have a legal standing before God that is just. We are justified. We are forgiven of all of our past sins. Romans 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. That's justification. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, that's your salvation. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you were at that moment saved from your entire past. But what does the enemy try to do about your past? And some of us in here have some pretty tough past, don't we? Donnie and I were talking about some of our past a little bit last week. You have some things that are in your life that... that, that that you're not proud of, things that you did that, that affected others, that have affected you, that hurt, and that still sort of somehow you're, God has used that because all things work together for good, and even though it was a sin, it was wrong, there's things that are still there. And what does the enemy do about your past? Come on, what does he do? Somebody tell me. He keeps bringing it back up. It's like we have this big bag here and our past before we came to Christ is all still before us and he whispers into our ear those things that we did in the past. He says, you're not forgiven. You're not cleansed. 
and he keeps many defeated today, I'm convinced, with the stinking thinking of believing that our past is greater than the grace of God. Your past is not greater than God's grace. I don't care what you think you have done or failed to do. Your sin is not greater than God's grace. And when you place your faith and trust in him, don't buy into the lie of the enemy who somehow wants to convince you that you are trash and that you can't overcome your past and they can't move beyond by faith into the realm of what it is to be a Christ follower and all that God purposes to do in your life. That's what it means to be assured of our salvation, to put on the helmet of salvation. And we say, no, devil, no. You know, sometimes it's not the devil speaking. It may be other people in our lives that are speaking for the devil. You hear me? And isn't it true that sometimes people are our worst enemies regarding our past? Because they have a hard time getting over it and forgetting it. And they want you to be reminded of it on a daily basis about who you used to be before you came to Christ. And and now they might be mad because somehow you have gotten off scot-free. But boy, they're sure going to be God's whipping stick that's going to make sure that you don't feel anything but guilt and shame and, and heartache because of your past. Isn't it great to know? Greg, isn't it great to know? You were a Halian, brother. Weren't you? Well, where is that past? It's gone. Do you sometimes hear whispers in the night reminding you of your past? I know I do. All the time. They're lies. They're lies. Because it says here, for by grace you have been saved. It's a reality. Number two, my assurance not only recalls a past event, but it relies on a present work. It relies on a present work, and this is what we call sanctification. And sanctification is a lifetime process. Sanctification is something that happens over your lifetime. The moment you're saved, you begin this beautiful journey called sanctification, where aren't you glad that he's still working on you? He ain't finished with you yet. And some of you need a whole lot more work than I do. Sanctification. It's a lifetime process. That God is working on us. But not only is he working on us, we must also work with him in this whole concept and aspect of sanctification. I've got to join him in this activity called sanctification. In other words, I have to yield to him. I have to follow his lead. I have to obey him. I have to guard. I have to put on the things that he's given me. I have to turn away from the old life and live the new life. There, there are things in, we join together, but sanctification, while still a present work in reality, notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. And I searched Ephesians until the cows came home and I couldn't find a, 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 a strong enough passage really that talks about sanctification in Ephesians as hard as I tried. I could twist a few scriptures, Mike, but I couldn't make it happen. And we don't want to do that. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Notice what it says. It says in 1 Corinthians For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, thus those of us who are being saved, those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Those of us who are being saved. See, you were saved from your fast, but you're still being saved. That's called sanctification. He is still in the process of saving you from yourself so that he molds you and shape you into the likeness of Christ. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. He is working on us. Ephesians 4, 20, 24, to put off the old self and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, we're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And in this process of sanctification, aren't there times when the enemy whispers into our ear and says, you'll never make it. You'll never measure up. You'll never succeed. You don't have enough faith. Especially when we stumble and fall and we sin. Boy, doesn't the devil have a heyday with that? I mean, he pounces on us. Makes us feel, and we should feel guilty and unworthy and shame and all of that. But then once we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have confessed it. We have repented of it. We walked away from it. But the enemy keeps saying, uh-uh-uh, you're not going to get off like that. You're never going to make it. You're never going to rise above your circumstance. You're never going to become who God created you to be in Christ. It's just not going to happen. Doubt, discouragement, disappointment. And the enemy whispers. But we must rely on the present activity of God. That even though we're not what we ought to be or are going to be, thank God we're not who we are are, are going to stay. And thank God we're not what we used to be. Aren't you glad you're not what you used to be? But you're not yet what you're going to be. But you're in the process of that, aren't you? And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to abandon you because of your failure. He's not going to ever walk away from you and leave you to your own resources. But he's going to continue to pursue you and to equip you and to enable you with the resources that are more than supernatural to demolish the strongholds of the enemy so that we might then be shaped and molded into the likeness of Christ. And then number three, assurance of deliverance recalls a past event, relies on a present event, but rests on a promised completion. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, there's a beautiful passage that talks about what we're going to call glorification. Because one of these days, he's going to complete that beautiful work he did in you when you were saved. It's going to, it's going to be completed. Ephesians 1, 13 said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, notice, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit... You were sealed, there's that guarantee, with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In other words, one of these days we are going to possess perfection. Now I'm about 99.9% there, but I'm not quite there yet. Come on. You're not buying it. No. Would you buy about 10%? (laughs) one of these days either through death 
or the return of Christ, you and I who are in Jesus, who placed our faith and trust in him, will be transformed into the likeness of Christ, and we will reflect all of that which he intended for us when we were saved. And we will be just like him. 1 Peter 1, 4, 5 says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And yet Satan often comes and whispers in our ear. There really is no finish line. There really is no judgment day. There'll be no transformation for you. You won't make it to the end. But we will. Because you see, people, it's not all about us. It's as much about us as it is about him. And that's why he gave us this beautiful armor to equip us, to enable us, and to empower us to be able to rise above ourselves, which is insufficient without Christ and what he has given us in order to reach it to the finish line and to be completed into the likeness of Christ. One of these days, the trumpet of God will blow and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and will be forever with the Lord. But in that forever with the Lord, we will be perfect as he is perfect in every way. John 8, 2, as we close with this final illustration, it's a story that I'm sure you're familiar with. It's about forgiveness. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, that's Jesus, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now when the law of Moses commanded us to stone such woman, so what do you say? What say ye? This they said to test him, that they might have some change to bring a charge against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Notice what she calls him, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. The point that I want to bring out of this story and this study and this scripture is basically this. To these self-righteous men who were looking at this woman who brought her to Jesus, how do they see themselves? They thought themselves as men not in need of grace. They somehow concluded in their minds that they didn't need grace. When in reality, they needed grace. But in their thoughts, in their minds, in their comprehension, in their understanding, they believed themselves to be so self-righteous that they did not need grace, but they did. These self-righteous men who didn't believe that they needed grace saw this woman as someone that was beyond God's grace. 
There are people that think that others are beyond God's grace. She was an adulteress, and the law said that she was to be stoned. She was beyond God's grace, and that's what they wanted. That's what the law required, and that's what they wanted to execute. The woman, I believe, as you take a look at the context of the story, knows that she has been caught in the act of adultery, knows that she's a sinner, and knows that she needs grace, but more than likely doesn't see herself as a recipient of grace because her sin is too great of a sin to cover or to be covered by God's grace. And here we have Jesus, the third element of this study, this scripture, who sees the men in the right way. He knows they need grace. In spite of their best efforts, they are sinners. They, are, they do not possess the righteousness that is necessary for salvation, and they are in need of grace, no matter what they think. They think the woman is beyond grace, but he knows that she is not. And he dispenses grace to her and gives her the grace that she needs and sends her on her way to live out the life of grace. For where there is great grace, great sin, grace abounds. And yet grace, while covering a multitude of sins, does not give us permission to indulge in sin. For Paul said, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. Grace results in the right kind of thinking about ourselves in our need for grace. We turn to the one who gives us that grace, unmerited favor from God through repenting of our sin, making him the Lord and the leader of our lives, turning to him for what we need, and he dispenses that grace that is more than sufficient to cover you from your past, completely covered from your past. And in the present, as we work with him, he is continuously working with us in this present life to bring about the salvation that is necessary through grace so that the ultimate fulfillment of that grace can be culminated at the end of our lives through perfection. We'll not need grace in heaven anymore because we'll be as he is, perfect. Grace is necessary in this battle with sin. It is necessary in our battle for the mind. Because I'm convinced you and I have not thought pure thoughts 24-7, seven days a week, have we? There have been aspects of our thought life that have been improper and inconsistent with keeping concentration on the Lord and keeping our devotion strong to him. And yet, as we come to the Lord in our admission to that, isn't it great to know that there's grace, grace more than enough to cover any thought, any distraction, any deviation that we may have ever had where we have left ourselves vulnerable and unexposed to the enemy and maybe even been defeated by the wrong kind of thinking. So have you dedicated your thought life to the Lord? As we close, I want to kind of close real quickly with three questions. Have you taken the helmet of salvation and have you put it on your head? Are you aware of its power and the potential that is there as a Christ follower to be able to guard your concentration and to focus on Christ and Christ alone? 
it comes to a personal realization that John 3.16 says, for all of us have sinned. 3.6.23 says the wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That once we confess our faith and trust in him, we can be cleansed from our past. We can be strengthened in the present and be destined for a promise of a beautiful future. If you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ personally, we encourage you to do that today and be equipped today to concentrate, to focus, and to guard your thoughts against the enemy. If you've done that today already in a personal time, maybe you need to come today and say, you know what, I want to follow Christ today in baptism. I want to become a part of the family, and I want to follow Kelly and be baptized just like she did and, and become a part of the family of God and, and um, become the Christ follower that he wants me to be. Maybe uh, you need to become a part of our church family and, and move your letter, become a part of our church. Our next steps area is over here. We invite you to do that as well. Or just maybe in this battle for the mind, you're not thinking the proper thoughts. You're not fortifying your mind with the proper beliefs and truths and understanding. You realize that you have sinful thoughts that are leading to sinful passions that are directing into sinful activities. And today is the day that you want to ask him to cleanse your mind today as you put on the helmet of salvation and enter into your battlefield called Wichita, Kansas. In the moment as we stand and sing, what is the decision that God is leading you to make in this time of, of celebration and time of surrender? Thank you, veterans, for giving the ultimate gift of your service to our country and the opportunity we have to celebrate the gift that Christ gave when he took upon himself our sins on the cross and died in our place. So today we want to celebrate that incredible gift through the baptism of Kelly. And so I would invite the family, if you're here, I think they're far over there, would you stand? If you would like to support Kelly and her decision to trust Christ and follow him in baptism, would you join her in standing as well? been my privilege to baptize her mom, uh, her other sister, she has two, and uh, to baptize her as well. We spent some time talking about the importance of having a personal relationship with Christ, and after being in the church for many years, 
Uh, she finally came to the realization that she needed Jesus as her personal Lord and Savior and trusted him as that Savior. So it's our joy to celebrate her new life in Christ today. And so, Kelly, have you placed your faith and trust in Christ and accepted him as your personal Savior and Lord? Yes. It's my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in his death, to walk with Christ in the power of his resurrection. Baptized her husband not too long ago, so now they're a perfect couple. Right, Kelly? Yes. Yes. So uh, I'm glad you're standing.